2021. Um, Today is our last class. Some people are happy about that than others, I'm sure, but we made it to the end. And um, appreciate everybody hanging in with us for two quarters that we've been walking through the book of Revelation. We're going to begin today like we always do, but we've got to finish everything we're going to say today because this is the last class. We're going to start in Revelation 21 with the hearing and keeping, the practical side of what we discussed last week in Revelation 21. And uh, then we'll move into some comments about Revelation 22, go through the passage, and then in today's class. All right, so Revelation 21, last week we talked about it. My view of it is it's the triumphant church after Roman persecution and all of that. But here's the most important part. What are the practical things that we learned from Revelation 21 that help us to live this message out, to hear and keep it? And that's what John says gets, gets the blessing. You remember Revelation 1-3? Blessed are those that hear and keep the words of this prophecy. And so that's what we want to do at the end of these chapters. Number one, John talks about a new heaven, a new earth, Revelation 21.1, which I think is the new environment post-Roman persecution. But there is a final new heaven, the new earth that Peter talks about in 2 Peter 3 and verse 13. And Christians need a way of looking at the world until we get to the new heavens and new earth that Peter talks about. And so Revelation 21 just helps us to see that God is constantly clearing out opposition now as he provides peace for us to make it to that final new heavens and new earth. And Peter says, we await that new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. And if we're going to be God's people, we need to be looking forward to that. The second thing from Revelation 21 we learn is that God dwells closely with his people. You remember John says in Revelation 21, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will be with them. Well, this passage teaches us that God dwells closely with his people. And the response to that is to live a holy life in view of what God's done. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says that God's called us to live these holy lives. He which has called you is holy, so you be holy in all your conduct as it is written, be holy for what? I'm holy. That's from Leviticus eleven forty four. But the whole thrust of that is if God's near me and God's holy, then I need to live a holy life. Second, or third, excuse me, our view of the church needs to match God's view of the church. And we sometimes think about this from this standpoint. We need a biblical view of the church, and we sometimes talk about being sure that we're not a denomination. That's true. But the reality is that's the bare minimum. That's really the bare minimum in God's view of the church. I think Revelation 21 provides this view of the church that we need to adopt. That is, we're royalty. We need to be the people that God wants us to be and live up to that high calling that God has for his people. And that's really the message throughout the 22 chapters that make up the book of Revelation. No matter what happens in Rome, you be God's people here. And that's true for us. No matter what happens out there, we're God's people here, not just in this building, but in the present world. And if we do that, then our view of the church matches God's view of the church. If we think about the biblical church and we draw a line down the sheet of paper and we say, here's what God wants and here's what we need to be about over here. And the only thing we have on this side of the paper is no instrumental music, baptism for the remission of sins, and all the things that do matter that can't be changed. We've gotten some things right, but we've just shot them way too low. Those things matter, but not at the expense of all the other things that God says about obeying. Okay, now you've got what to believe. Here's how you need to behave. And so Revelation 21 just challenges us, I think, to view the church the way that God does. It's this heavenly jeweled city where we ultimately win with him. Next, those who choose the world will choose eternal woes. That's Revelation 21, 8. John talks about all of those that practice lies and adultery and sorcery, and he says they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. There will be a final lake of fire where there will be no second chances. There won't be any do-overs. And so if we want to avoid that, we need to be the way the people God wants us to be. Next, we're saved to shine. That's Revelation 21, 23 through 27. 
John says, in that city, there is no night or no day, nor sun and no what? No moon, because the lamb is there and he's their life. We are saved to shine. And I think what John is driving at there is Christians have come out of this great amount of persecution. But one of the reasons why God saves us is not just to save us from the world, but God saves us for the world. And that's one of the big differences we sometimes see between the church of the Bible and maybe the way we view the church today. They didn't look at the world, and even though all of the things that were going on in the Roman Empire were pressing in hard upon them, first Jewish persecution and then Romans, the first century Christians didn't look at their circumstances and say, what's the world coming to? They looked at the world and they said, look at what's coming to the world. And they had a message, whether they were in Thessalonica, Philippi, Athens, you name it, Ephesus, they brought that message and they realized we're saved to shine. It's our delight and our duty to do that, and that's what God wants us to be, to do. Here's the last thing from Revelation 21. Our names are in the eternal book of life. If we enjoy life with him now, the day is coming when we will enjoy life with him there forever. First John 2.25 says, this is the promise he's promised us, even eternal life. And so I just want to reiterate what I said last week. Though I don't think in the immediate context, Revelation 21 is primarily about heaven. As you can see from this, several things, really everything that John says in that glorious chapter also parallels many things that we see about heaven. This life whets our appetites for the life over there. And I think this is how we hear and keep Revelation 21. All right. Any questions on Revelation 21 before we go into the final chapter of Revelation 22? All right. Great. Revelation 22, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it there. The end of the book, John concludes in Revelation 22. Um, I think we just need to say a few things before we start, and that is, as you get to the end of Revelation, just remember, and I know we've done a lot, we've read a lot of things, talked about a lot of signs and symbols. The first thing we should keep in mind, though, is the book of Revelation, at its heart, is a letter to seven churches. There would have been seven, seven congregations that read this letter and applied the message to themselves. And then after that, like all the other New Testament epistles, it would have been copied down and circulated in a broader radius outside of just the seven churches in Asia Minor. Colossians 4.16, 1 Thessalonians 5.27 tells us this was the practice, to take these epistles and read them to all the holy brethren. So make sure we see Revelation that way, as a letter that would have been read by someone to the local congregations, and they would be challenged to put it into practice. This chapter ends by continuing the description of the triumphant church and then mixing words of blessing and warning for those who receive this message. The church then is admonished to take these words seriously. So John ends this message in the first five verses. He's going to continue what he talked about in chapter 21. But then at about verse 6, there's going to be some final words of admonition and encouragement about the message itself, about obedience and disobedience and all those things. If you read Revelation 22, there's clearly a connection between the first few chapters of the Bible and this last chapter of the Bible. And here are some of the ways John connects them. In the first chapter of the Bible, there's a garden. Here John's going to say, there's a garden. He makes this connection between the Garden of Eden and there's a Garden of Paradise here. There's also a river. In Genesis chapter 2, there are those rivers that are there. And then in Revelation, John says there's a river of the water of life. In the opening chapters of the Bible, there's what we call the tree of life. And at the end of the book of Revelation, guess what John sees? Take a guess. God loves trees, right? There's a tree at the beginning of the Bible. You think about the tree Jesus died on. There's a tree in the middle of the Bible. The Old Testament says in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then there's a tree at the end of the Bible. 
God does his best work through trees, and you see it come up again here in the book of Revelation. There's also this theme of man's disobedience and his separation from the tree and from the garden. So in the beginning of the Bible, God says, hey, you can eat of all the trees that are in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat of it, for in the day you eat thereof, you'll surely die, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, at the end of the Bible. John says, Revelation 22, 14, Blessed are those that do his commandments that they might have right to the tree of life and enter into the gates within the city. So there's this idea again of the tree of life, a parallel. There's a curse pronounced on the serpent and the soil at the beginning of the Bible. And at the end, there is a curse pronounced on those that disobey. And then the last thing that parallels these two chapters, or really the first three chapters of Genesis and the last of Revelation is close fellowship is enjoyed with God. In Genesis 3 and verse 8, we read that God walked in the garden with Adam in the cool of the day. And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, and we'll see some of the strong language that John uses to suggest that in Christ, this close fellowship is enjoyed again between people. And so you see some of that. This chapter ends by focusing on an invitation in verse 17 and also inviting Jesus to come in verse 20. It's not just a book about information, but ultimately it's about action and response. So before we start, I might not get a chance to say this, so I'll just say it now. We've been studying the book of Revelation for about six months. And I don't know how, how you feel about the book. Maybe you feel like you know more about it. Maybe you feel like you know less about it. Maybe you feel like some of the difficulty has been cleared up for you. But here's just some of what I hope we walk away with. I hope we've been encouraged that Revelation can't be mastered by any, but it can be understood by all. We can know what John wants us to know from this book. I hope we've appreciated the context and history of the book that teaches us the church experienced victory in the days of the Roman Empire and the church experiences victory in every age against any opposition so long as we follow the Lamb. I hope our desire to worship God has been increased and the words of praise and adoration we've learned here help infuse our worship to Him. Throughout the book of Revelation, there are these spiritual interludes, these praise breaks that John captures for us. Chapters 4 and 5, chapter 7, chapter 14, chapter 15. And I hope we've picked up some of that terminology. And when we're in the auditorium and we sing a song and we hear the word hallelujah, we think about the heavenly chorus of Revelation 19. When our hymnology, that means what we sing, matches our biblical theology. When you're singing hymns, part of the job of the worshiper is to connect what we're singing to biblical passages. And when you start doing that, I believe at least in part, we're on our way to spiritual maturity. When you sing lyrics and you think, oh, that passage is about this. And I hope the book of Revelation has helped us to see that. I hope it's taught us to abstain from wickedness of our present age, avoid the spirit of compromise, and use the spiritual weaponry at our disposal to be successful against the dragon. And I hope you also see that as far as the Bible is concerned, the Church of Christ is a beautiful city now. Come down to earth from God that cannot be defeated or destroyed, for that opens our doors to the nations. And it's our responsibility to leave the light on for the dark world. Because that's John's message in these 22, 22 chapters. All right, let's begin with Revelation 22, 1 through 5. John says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, there was the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light, 
of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So I think this is continuing with what we read in Revelation 21. And John starts by saying he saw the what in Revelation 22, verse 1. What does John see? The angel showed him the what? River of life. So John has used all of these different images. He saw a city. He saw a bride, and now he sees the river of life. The river was as bright as crystal, and it's flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And so John sees all these images. In the Bible, water sometimes is presented as a gift of life, especially in arid regions of the world where it could be dry, and John uses that terminology here. I don't know if I have this on your sheet, but if you're making notes and cross-references so you can check all of this out later, I know you all can't wait to do this on your free time, but um, Ezekiel 47 1 through 12, Joel 3, 18, and Zechariah 14, 18 are Old Testament prophecies that talk about a time when God's going to provide his water for the rest of the nation. If we know the Old Testament, when John starts playing God's greatest hits, we say, oh yeah, he did promise that he was going to do that. And the same thing is true here. Jesus spoke of offering those that come to him the water of life. You remember what he told the woman at the well, John 4 and verse 10? He says, if you would have asked me, I would have given you living water. She says, sir, from whence comes this living water? The well is deep and you don't have a bucket to draw. What is the living water that Jesus offers the world? <laughs> himself. John 6, 35, he says, I'm the bread of life. Those that come to me will never hunger, and those that draw near to me will never thirst. And then in John 7, John gives us this parenthetical statement where he says, the water that Jesus promised that would well up in individuals' lives is the Holy Spirit that at that point hadn't been poured out. The river of the water of life that John sees in Revelation 22 is Jesus' presence and his involvement with his people, and this comes down from the throne of God and from the Lamb. God provides exactly what his people need. This pure and clean, life-sustaining water is available only for people that are in the church. What does Jesus tell the devil in Matthew 4 and verse 4 when he's tempted? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So God provides what we need. The nations are healed. Look at verse 2. This is important as John's rounding out his thoughts about the city. Through the middle of the street of this city which is the church, also on either side of the river of the tree of life with its 12 kind of fruits, yielding its fruit each month, or what? What does John say at the end of verse 2? The end of verse 2, what do you have? The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Okay, question. What do you think the leaves represent? What do you think the leaves are? So John sees this river of life, and then he also sees the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit and then he says he saw these leaves that were for the healing of the nations. Andy? One thing that I, I think about that is that um, it's sort of like the the effect of the teaching of the church mm -hmm. because there are a lot of people in our world today that even though they're not Christian they have sort of absorbed the teaching of you know do unto others as you would have them do unto you right the golden rule and so there are people who are moral, even though they're not Christian, because they've sort of absorbed a little bit of the morality, and that improves the world, even if they don't fully commit, although that doesn't come the judgment. Yeah, I think that's partially correct. I think John's saying something stronger than that, though. Um, I would just say Revelation 22, 2 is, again, another proof that John's not talking about the end of the world. If this were heaven, 
one, the nations couldn't be healed, it would be too late, and those that are in Christ wouldn't need further healing. So whatever John's talking about is something that benefits people that are still alive. And so this has to be something that continues. I believe the healing of the nations is a marvelous statement in view of everything that John said in chapter 21 about the church. And it is this, the church, as Andy mentioned, stands in the world to make a difference. But we don't just want to make moral theists out of everybody. Well, they believe in God. They know a few things from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The healing of the nations comes as the nations obey the what? The gospel, the word. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just will live by faith. The nations are healed as the church comes down from God, quote unquote, after persecution, shines her light, Revelation 21, 23 through 27. And as the nations look in on what's taking place, no more import worship, we know that's not going to save us. No more idolatry from the Roman Empire, that's not going to help us. We want more of what the world has to offer through Jesus Christ and through Christianity. And just track church history. It's exactly what happened. When Rome fell, Christianity blossomed and boom. I know there were corruptions. I know it became in some ways diluted through various things. But in the end, the nations were healed and they still are healed today as the light of the world goes out to the world from the church. We are the healing of the nations. What's going to make the world a better place ultimately? What do you think? Better people. Better people? Maybe. How are people going to be better? What's going to heal the world in the ultimate sense? What do you think is going to change the world? Christ. Christ and the gospel. Christ and the gospel. And if we believe that, that we are the healing of the nations, when we say, what's this world coming to? We indict ourselves. It's our responsibility as Christians not to make anybody do anything. People are going to live the way they want. But we are here for the healing of the nations. We are the, what does he say? Look at verse 2 again. The tree of life with its 12 with each of his 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Who does Jesus tell to bear fruit in John 15? Those who abide in who? In him, and that's us, John 15, one through eight. And so the healing of the nations comes as the church does her part to help the nations to be healed. Verse three, John says, nothing accursed will enter into the city. Why won't anything accursed enter into the new city? What's happened to all the accursed stuff that John says? Chapter 20, verse 15. Chapter 21 and verse 8, where is it being cast? In the lake of fire. It's on the outside. So nothing can enter in that will hurt it. And then in verse 4, John says that those that are redeemed will see his face and his name will be on their forehead. Okay, seeing God's face in the Bible involves ultimate fellowship. Who does the Bible say saw God face to face? Starts with Mo, ends with Sis. Moses, great. You guys are scholars. Yeah, so... God tells Moses, or really Miriam and Aaron, you remember Numbers 12, they say, God, Moses, you think God only speaks by you and God shows up in Numbers 12, 6 through 8, and he says, if I want to say something to a prophet, I speak in dreams and in visions, but not so with Moses. I speak to him face to face as a man speaks with his friends. In Exodus 33, 11, in Deuteronomy 34 and verse 10, they all bear down on this idea. Revelation 22 comes along and says, hey, these people that are redeemed, they will see God face to face. What does that mean? It doesn't mean literally see God face to face, at least not in this life. Nobody can do that, John 1, 18. But it does mean they enjoy close fellowship with him and experience his presence. Not the first time the Bible says this. You think, well, maybe not. I think this is it face to face. That's not it. It's about close fellowship. Go to Psalm 17. 
Psalm 17, and notice what David says about seeing God, not at the end of life, but right now, based on the way he lives. It's the last verse. Whoever gets there first, read Psalm 17 and verse 15. As for me, I will see your face of righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your life. If you go up, you see David's going through some things, primarily just starting verse 13. And David feels like when he comes out of this on the other side, I will behold your face in righteousness. Did David literally see God face to face? No or no? No, right? But what does David mean? What does David mean? He means exactly what other people mean that you've heard say something like this. They've gone through hardship. They come out the other side and they say, I've got a deep relationship with God now. Or, oh, this passage means more to me than it ever did before. It's always meant the same thing. But what do people mean when they say that? They mean what? They can appreciate it more. It's come home in a deeper way to them now. The church will see God face to face. Enjoy this intimate and deep fellowship with God because they hail fast in the midst of Roman persecution. And guess what? Every time we come out of trial, every time we hold on to him, instead of choosing compromise, we see him face to face in a new and better way. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says we're all beholding his face and being changed from one degree of glory to another. We are coming into God's presence in a deeper and richer way as we hold on. And these Christians in Asia Minor did the same thing. The last thing that John says in this section in verse 5 is that we will reign with God. There will be no more night. And they will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord their God will be their light. And they will reign with him how long? Question, when do we start reigning with the Lord? Somebody's like, have we started? Yeah, we have. Like, when did we start, though, as individuals? When did you and I start reigning with the Lord? The day we were baptized. That's right. But there's an already not yet aspect to this, right? We reign with the Lord now, but we want to reign with him when? Forever and ever. We will. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12. And so Christians are reigning with the Lord right now. Where do we do that? Where do we want to reign with the Lord ultimately? Where do we reign with him right now? On earth, and that's what John's talking about in this passage. Go to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5, and let's get somebody else who hasn't read or commented to read Revelation 5, 9, and 10. John already said this, and he's just coming back to it at, in the last chapter. Revelation 5, let's get somebody to read verse 9 and 10. And notice where John says the reigning takes place. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain in your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. All right, thanks, Chad. That's exactly what John says happened. Jesus redeemed us. He makes us priests to God. That's 1 Peter 2, 5 through 9. We're a royal priesthood, and we reign with him on earth. And so our royal status kicks in the day we obey the gospel. We start reigning. I know. People get baptized in rivers and in baptistries. They get up out of the water. We dry off, and nothing in our life looks different. Just about everything's the same. But according to heaven, it's in that moment that we enter the royal throne. We become kings and princes and princesses and priests, and we reign with God on earth beginning that moment, and it's ultimately realized in heaven. Revelation 22, 5, John saying, hey, these Christians have come out of great persecution, and they will reign with him forever. It starts now, and it won't ever end. It's only begun. All right, Revelation 22, let's notice verses 6 down through verse 13. Any questions on 1 through 5? 
Speak now forever hold your peace. I'm never answering a question about Revelation again. This is the last class. No. But if you have a question, don't be afraid. Go ahead and ask it. 22, 6 through 13. John's switching now. No more about the city. He's wrapping up some final things about the message. Look at verse 6. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, let the filthy still be filthy, let the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon and bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. All right. So in Revelation 22, 6, John says several things about the message he's received. These words are what? In the different translations, they render pistis, the word here, differently. So I just want to hear what you've got. ESV has these words are trustworthy and true. What have we got? King James, New King James family. Faithful and true. Okay. We know what the Bible means when it says these words are true, right? That means they're without fault. They're exactly what God gave us. God can't lie. Hebrews 6, 18. What does the Bible mean when it says these words are faithful or trustworthy? What does that mean? These words are faithful and true. We tell people the Bible is true. You can bank on that. Got you. Understand. What do we mean when we say the words of God are also faithful? Though? What does that mean? What's mean? <laughs> oh, last forever. Yes, you can put your faith in them. What else? They're dependable. That's the heart of the message. John saying these words, they're not just true, but they're also dependable words. That means you and I are never going to be let down because we did what God told us to do in the Bible. There is no Bible passage from God's standpoint that can make your life worse if you obey it. You believe that? There's no Bible passage that if you obey it, it's going to make your life worse. You think, well, this is hard. I don't want to give this up. Your life always, my life always is enhanced and better by obeying God. Why? Because his words are true. Yes, but they're also faithful. Proverbs 30 and verse 5, the Proverbs writer says, Every word of God proves true. His words are a shield to those that put their trust in him. The idea is they protect you from things that would ruin your life. Sometimes people think if they obey the Bible, they're going to miss out on something. But his words aren't just true. They're also faithful. They're dependable. You can put all of your eggs in that spiritual heavenly basket and never be disappointed. John's rounding out this 22 chapter revelation and he's saying, hey, by the way, I just want you to remember what I told you is the truth. I didn't lie, but it's also dependable and faithful, and you can bank on it. You can put your whole life on the line. You can let the Romans chop off your head, burn you alive, and you won't go into extinction. You will arise in the presence of God because these words are faithful, and they are true. You're not wasting your time following God. You're making the most of it, and that's what John wants to drive home. And then he says in verse 6, the Lord of the Spirit of God of the prophets sent his angel to show John what? In verse 6, what does he say? To show me the things that must what? Shortly take place. Okay, this goes back to Revelation 1 and verse 1. Go to Revelation 1 and verse 1, and let's have somebody read that verse. We're running out of time, guys, quickly. Revelation 1 1. All right, so John bookends the book that way. They must soon take place, now he comes back to it. But that's not all of it. 
If you, if you underline in your Bible, if you mark phrases, chapter 22 is an easy one. Because John's going to use a phrase, I'm going to put the verses up here, that over and over again, John's coming back to this idea of things that are shortly take place. And I just think it's important. Whatever you make of chapter 21 and 22, it's got to match up with what John says here. Notice this, 22.6, these things must soon take place. 22.7, Jesus says what? I would underline these phrases if I mark in my Bible. Behold, I am coming what? What does Jesus say? Soon. Revelation 22.10, the phrase coming soon is not there, but John is told, don't seal up the book. A.K.A. these things are happening really quick. Don't even close up the message. Revelation 22.12, what does Jesus say? Again, I'm coming soon. And then Revelation 22.20, 20, Jesus says again, I am coming soon. And then what does John invite him to do at verse 20? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Why does John keep reminding them in the final chapter that these things are happening soon? Why would he be saying to Christians then, Jesus is coming soon? We got a song about this. Not with John, man, but John's talking about Jesus coming against the Romans soon. Why would John keep reminding them these things are happening quickly? Why do you think? Hold on. You haven't saw my notes. That's the exact phrase I've got here. Hold on, right? Don't give up. Your redemption draws nigh. Now, you might be thinking, well, soon is soon. I mean, what does soon mean, right? It could mean like soon could be relative. Soon could be like any time, not the words John uses. John uses two words for soon in Revelation 22 and really throughout the book. And here's what the words mean. They won't let us get away with this idea that, well, soon could be some 2,000 years down the road. John used the word to cost in Greek. It means brief time subsequent to another point in time. It means like right on the hill. That, he uses that twice, at the beginning of the book and at the end. But then John uses this word, takus, and he uses it in all these passages. And it means without delay, quickly, and at once. Nobody could get away with, well, maybe John just meant relatively soon. Maybe John didn't mean first century. It's exactly what John meant. There are Greek words that mean like at some point in time down the future. John didn't use any of those. He's using the same words he's been using throughout the book. Because whatever John said in 21 and 22 that was happening, it was happening without delay, quickly at once. In fact, it was already happening as the wheels were already coming off the Roman Empire. Listen, by the end of the first century, Domitian dies. He's killed in his own courts by his own officials. John meant exactly what he said. These things are coming soon. And so these words don't favor an interpretation that makes the book, especially these final chapters, something that's 2,000 years down the line or even in eternity. Any interpretation that fails to consider the swiftness of what John says here is the wrong interpretation. John says these things were happening soon, and they did. And so this is a key indicator for interpreting the book, and really this final chapter. It matters. It matters for the integrity of John. I've read commentators that have said, well, maybe John didn't know what he was talking about. Listen, he didn't if these things weren't coming soon. If you've got a view that says, well, John was talking about something down the line. John, why did you tell me it's coming at the heels? And why invite Jesus to come in Revelation 22, 20 if it's not happening in John's lifetime or any time thereafter? John knew what he was talking about. When he meant soon, he meant exactly what some of us mean when we say I'm down the street, I'm coming soon. Some of us don't, but you know what I mean, right? John meant soon. All right, Revelation 22, 7, John says... Jesus is coming soon, and blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This may be Revelation 22, 7 and Revelation 1, 3, probably the most important words in the book. 
What does John say in 22.7 again? Blessed is the one who does what? Everybody. What does he say? Blessed is the one who keeps the words of his prophecies. That's the most important thing. In the end, Jesus is not holding out a blessing for the person that gets the interpretation of Revelation 22, right? Jesus is holding out a blessing for the person that does what they find in Revelation 22. And the rest of the world. Blessed is the one that does. See, the key to Revelation, some people say, man, you know, I pretty much got a handle on the New Testament. If I could just get Revelation, you know, if I could just understand, there's no blessing for the person that merely comprehends. The blessing is for the one that complies. Jesus is not impressed with our knowledge of Greek or numeric interpretation or historical background of this book. You say, well, I finally, I got all of that. I got all the references. John says, blessed is the one who does what he reads here. The one who keeps the message of these words. Jesus says, in the end, it makes a difference if we obey these words. Not if we simply know them or memorize them or are very familiar with them. If we know everything this book isn't teaching. The only person that's blessed in the end is the person that reads the book of Revelation and then says, in response to that, I'm going to do what I read here. In verse 8, John says, these are the words that came from me. And what does John want to do again in verse 8 and verse 9? He did this in chapter 19. What's he doing now? falls down to worship an angel and what is he told don't do that instead you should worship God this is important in a book where people are tempted to worship the false beast the dragon the false prophet and even angels the thrust of the book of Revelation is there's only one who's worthy of worship and that's the lamb and the one who sits on the throne and John's reminded of that same thing he's told in chapter 22 and verse 10 look at that verse for a second do not seal up the words of this prophecy why for the time is what Near. Go to Daniel chapter 12 quickly. Go to Daniel 12. And I'm going to show you the difference between what John was dealing with and what Daniel was dealing with. Now, in Daniel 12, Daniel has a lot of similarities with Revelation. But in Daniel 12, he received some prophetic messages starting in chapter 7 and working down through chapter 12. But notice what Daniel's told. I'm in Daniel 12, beginning with verse number 8. Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand and then I said, O Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and, and what? Sealed until the time of the end. Many will purify themselves, make themselves white, and be refined. But the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who are wise will understand. Daniel's told, seal up these things. Because what Daniel received in his final six chapters wasn't going to happen for another 500 years. But John's told... Don't even put the clamps on the book, John. The time is near. These things are already out. And so I want you to make sure that you don't seal them up. John's audience needed to hear the message and hear it quickly. Help me out with verse 11, Revelation 22, 11. I, we could understand this last part. Let the righteous still do right. Let the holy still be holy. What does God mean when he says to John here, let the evildoers still be evil? What do you think that means? Is God encouraging people to keep doing wrong? Everybody go this way. Whatever it means, it doesn't mean that, right? Like, whatever I'm reading here, God's not saying keep sinning. So what do you think God's saying? Let the evildoers still do evil. Let the righteous person still do what's right, and the holy person still do what's holy. Surely John's not encouraging people, hey, just keep on sinning. That's going to work out great for you. What is John saying, though? Andy? Isn't that another way of, um, of saying, let, let them keep doing this, because it's not going to change it. It's and you will reap yeah. what you sow. 
Yeah, he's saying exactly that. You just keep doing that if you want, and you're going to reap what you sow. Righteous people, you just keep doing righteousness, and you're going to see how that plays out. And the wicked person, if you continue to do wicked, you'll reap what you sow. Verse 12 and verse 13, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is coming soon, and he's going to reward everybody according to their works. Question, are we saved by works? Everybody, are we saved by works? Okay. How sure are you about that? Like we just told you. Listen, there's a sense in which we are, though. Meritorious works, where we do something and we stand before God and say, pay up, you owe me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul says, oh no, for by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, just the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then on the other hand, you've got this passage, Matthew 16, James 2, and others that talk about works of obedience. Not where we earned it, but where we responded to the grace of God. If you show up, if we show up at the throne of God without those, we won't be saved. And so there's a sense in which when somebody says, are we saved by works? The response should be, what kind of works do you mean? If you mean by works, have I earned it because of my flawless performance? Absolutely not. But if you mean works in compliance with the will of God, obedience in response to what God's done, everybody has to do that in order to be saved. Because the Bible says that we do. Russell? Exactly. Second Corinthians five ten, Paul says, "We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive for the things done in his body, whether they've been good or." Evidently, your works mean something, and so do mine. Solomon, Ecclesiastes 12, 14. God will bring every work into the judgment with every secret thing, whether it's good or... So I'm going to ask again. Are we saved by works? It depends. It depends on what we mean by works. Jesus is going to come back and reward everybody according to their works. Look at verse 12. I'm coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay each one for what he's done. What if you haven't done anything? Exactly. If Jesus is going to come back and reward people based on what they've done, and Jesus comes back and I haven't done anything, what does that mean for me? No what? No reward. So our works will play a role. Not to earn it, but to evidence that we've genuinely received it and we appreciate it. All right, let's round out the book of Revelation 14 through 17. We'll do this section and the last one quickly so we can get to the hearing and keeping. Blessed are those who wash their robes, verse 14, so they may have right to the tree of life. Entering the gates by the city, outside of the dogs, sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers and idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. All right, verse 14, Jesus says, blessed are those who wash their robes and make them um, blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have right to the tree of life. When do we wash our robes? When we, get, when we get baptized. When do we keep them washed? As long as we walk in the what? In the life. If you do that, look at verse 14. They may have right to the tree of life and into the gates of the city. I think the King James and New King James even have an additional phrase in their manuscripts. Do his commandments or something like that. And so you got to obey. You wash your robes. You'll receive this. The Who's outside in verse 15? Who is that about? 
the filthy are outside. Who are these people in the context of Revelation? The unbelievers, yes. Which would be who at this time? The Romans, the persecutors. I think John's admonition to you and me would be this. When Jesus comes back, do not be found outside. You know, we talk about the ark and the illustration and the parallel between Noah and the church. Don't be found outside when Jesus comes back. You know, there are a lot of people outside that if you come up to them, they'll say, even if they know better, oh, I know, I'm waiting to get right. All I can say is to every one of us, don't get caught outside when he comes. Because without, there'll be no entrance in. Matthew 25, you remember the foolish virgins, they come knocking and Jesus says, I don't know who you are, Matthew 25, 1 through 10. Don't be found outside. The angel was sent by Jesus to the churches. And notice how he identifies Jesus. He mentions all of these credentials from Jesus. He's, a, he's from the descendant of David, a root of David. That's Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. Jesus is the bright and morning star. That's a prophecy made by Balaam in Numbers 24, 17. One's coming from Judah who will be the bright and morning star. Why mention these messianic credentials here? We already know who Jesus is. I think John's saying to these folks, hey, look, just like the Old Testament promised the first time Jesus is coming, he'd be from David's line, he'd be the bright morning star, and he did come, Jesus is coming again. As he keeps saying in this chapter, coming soon, coming soon, coming soon. Who's coming? The one who came from David, the one who's the bright morning star. And then notice verse 17. Who offers this invitation in verse 17? Just read the verse and then tell me what you see. Two parties in verse 17. Who offers this invitation? Spirit. All right, who's the spirit? The Holy Spirit. And then the bride. Who is that? See? The spirit and the bride. Okay, everybody who's invited in is invited by the Holy Spirit. You've got to be born of the spirit. John 3, 3 through 5. But then he says the bride. This couldn't be the end of the world. We're still sending out RSVP invitations. Here's what we need to appreciate. Every time we invite somebody, we sing a duet with the Spirit. We never invite alone. Evangelism is always a duet between the Spirit and the bride. Together, we invite people to come. John's rounding out the book of Revelation. Verse 16 says he wrote to the churches, but the churches are to take the revelation. I've heard people say this before. Well, look, John wrote in signs and symbols so that just in case the Romans got a hold of the book, John never says that. And that wouldn't work. Why would they try to hide the message? It's the most evangelistic, apocalyptic literature in all the Bible. This isn't some secret that they're afraid the Romans will get a hold of. They hope you get a hold of it so you're not caught outside. They're not trying to keep this a secret. They're already being persecuted. They're not fearful that somebody's going to do something to them. They know where they're going, Revelation 14, 13. The spirit and the bride actually say to the Romans, come, and whosoever will let them come. They want people in, not out. The book of Revelation wasn't written in codes and signs and symbols in case a Roman guard got it, the Christians would be persecuted. Listen, they were already being persecuted because they wouldn't worship the emperor. This isn't a secret. John's writing in Old Testament terminology that anybody familiar with the Hebrew Bible can look back and say, oh yeah, this is exactly what happened. It's not a secret. It's an invitation. The spirit and the bride today still say come. It encourages us in evangelism. We always sing a duet with the spirit. It's never just you inviting a friend to worship. It's never just you saying to a person, hey, would you like to study the Bible? Every time you say those words, it's the spirit and the bride. And you think about all the passages in the New Testament that say, whosoever will may come. You have that here. Four, four minutes and about five verses or four verses here. Look at 18 through 21. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy, 
God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. All right, final word about the word. This verse that is in this book is kind of common because it is the book that people add the most to and just bring in their own interpretation. And John says, don't do that. And people have lined the shelves with things like, hey, we've got the key code to Revelation. Buy my book and my DVD and I'll tell you all the signs. John says, don't do that. Don't add to this message and don't take away. Question, why would somebody want to add to this message? Why do you think that would be a temptation to add to the revelation John's given? To deceive, yes. And sometimes we want to be clearer than God. Right? God says something a specific way and we say, well, I can come along and help you out with that. Why would somebody want to take away from the message? Their agenda. Hey, this is offensive. We really didn't mean what we said. Everybody that does these things probably won't go all the way to hell. You know, we probably get stuck halfway down. We just want to take away from it. And so John says, no, don't add to it. Don't take away. He says, keep the message pure. It's our responsibility to preach the whole counsel of God. We've got to say everything that God says. And John says, don't add to it, don't take away. This is found in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2, and also Proverbs 35 and 6. We bear a responsibility to deliver the message of God the way that God gives it. We can't change it. It's not our responsibility to echo what everybody else has said. It's our responsibility to say exactly what God said. We need to make sure that what we're taught is exactly what comes from Scripture. And um, that's just an important point. But I, I could say more about that. We'll just skip it for now because time. Jesus is coming soon. And he invites John. And John invites him to do the same thing. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. I think it's fine to pray Revelation 22 and verse 20. I think we should. John's talking about him coming and punishment on the Romans. But um, I think we should be inviting the return of Jesus. Go to 1 Corinthians 16. I've only got two minutes, but this is working. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 22 is a phrase that John, uh, Paul just brings over, right, from Aramaic into Greek, and we just kept it this way in English too, which is fine. Um, I think the King James does this the way it is. Can somebody read verse 22 in the King James? Or New King, I think, is the same. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be first. O Lord, come. O Lord, come. Some translations have Maranatha, which is the actual phrase John uses there. That's another, inviting Jesus to come. Even so, come. Would you be comfortable praying that Jesus come back right now? If you're in Christ, you should. You think, well, somebody says, well, yeah, but I've got family members outside of Christ. Don't you think Paul had people he loved that were outside of Jesus? Don't you think John had the same? That doesn't change that reality that we want individuals to be saved. But who would ever postpone close, deep, intimate fellowship with God? We shouldn't be able to stand another day outside of it. We'll tolerate it because he hasn't come back yet, but we should be inviting him. And the last thing is John ends the book with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to put the hearing and keep it up here. But here's one contrast to remember. Malachi 4 verse 5, the last message in the Old Testament talks about a curse. The last verse in the New Testament talks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a difference and what a contrast. For note takers, here's the hearing and keeping of Revelation 22. In the end, just do what John says, okay? Whatever John says, that's what we need to do. Be faithful to him. Don't add to the message. Don't take away from it. 
Thanks for a good quarter Bible study. We'll start Romans at least in here next quarter, and there'll be fundamentals of the faith taught in the auditorium um, as the next quarter begins next Sunday. But thanks for a good class. If there's any questions about the class, I'll answer them. And if you want the notes that I talk from, I'll be happy to email them to you. Not the blanks, but these are the actual notes from the class. Anybody that wants them can have them. But I hope you learned something from the book. I appreciate the studying with you as we went into it.